This is In Tune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series opera that speaks, theater that sings, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. I'm your host, Timothy Nelson, Artistic Director of In-Series, and as we begin the month of August, what in D.C. is the hottest and most humid month where many of us run for the hills, I'm taking a moment to record a new podcast to inaugurate our 2019-2020 season, which is titled Lean In. The season premieres a month from tomorrow, I can't believe it, with our opening production, Butterfly, which begins rehearsals in earnest in just under two weeks It's vacation for many of you, our dear audience and listeners, but here at InSeries, things are ramping up as we begin to embark on one of our fullest, biggest, and most exciting seasons yet. The full season includes not only Butterfly, but in October, the premiere of a new theater work by Sybil Williams, a new version of Shakespeare's Tempest from the perspective of the colonized, enslaved characters titled Stormy Weather and told using the music of Billie Holiday. This is followed by a community staging in collaboration with Foundry United Methodist Church of Berlioz's The Childhood of Christ, or L'Enfance du Christ. There will be an immersive theater experience meditating upon human migration and the importance of offering hospitality to families fleeing violence and persecution in their own countries. We begin 2020 with Le Cabaret de Carmen, a tango version of Bizet's opera with complete with tango orchestra and set in a nightclub cabaret. This is followed by a week-long festival of works in March by women composers, featuring two operas, two late-night cabarets, and a gala evening concert. And finally, our subscribers get to vote on the final production, which will happen in April of 2020. They'll vote between Handel's Me Too Oratorio Susanna or a circus version of Verdi's Rigoletto. There's still time to get in on that vote and to become a subscriber. You can find more information on our website at www.inseries.org or by calling our box office at 202-204-7763. I'm here today, however, to talk about Butterfly, which is a new theater work based on Puccini's beloved opera that we're presenting. Uh, And to begin the the discussion, which I'm sort of just going to freestyle, I want to explore why Butterfly. It's an unlikely work for a company like InSeries to produce. We are a small, um, I don't like this term, but chamber opera in heavy quotes uh, company producing intimate uh, music theater experiences based on, uh, largely based on the opera canon. Um, Puccini's Butterfly epitomizes grand opera, um, and when I say grand opera, I don't mean the literal definition, which is a, a French musical form, but large opera, opera presented in large proscenium halls with a penguin in the pit, uh, with a large orchestra, and um, a full house of concert goers, and a large chorus, and epic costumes and sets. Um, and there are many pieces in the repertoire that that epitomize this form, Traviata, Aida, Carmen, Uh, but Butterfly is certainly one of them. Uh, And Butterfly is very much on the lips of all opera companies, at least in North America today. I think one of the most common conversations happening at uh, across the table of opera producers or at opera conventions, Opera America, is how do we perform Madame Butterfly today, how is it appropriate in any, in any way to perform this beloved, wonderful, it must be said, composition um, that's also 
troublesome, deeply problematic piece. Um, I want to I want to delve into a little bit to why it's problematic, but I first want to say that it's for this very reason that it that it's problematic and that uh, every opera company is seeking an answer to if and how the piece can be performed. It's for that very reason that I wanted to open my first full season with the company, a company that I hope will be at the forefront for exploring how to make opera vibrant and vital in our community's uh, life and conversations. I wanted to make it a centerpiece uh, and the beginning of, of my first season with the company that's, ho that's wholly mine. Um, I want to begin by talking about my own relationship with Puccini's Madama Butterfly. Uh, I think Butterfly is a work that many opera lovers uh, attach to young. It's extremely accessible. Uh, its story is immediate. Its drama is obvious, and I don't, I don't mean that pejoratively. Um, and its score is, is magnetic and brilliant. Um, I myself came to Butterfly very late. I was already producing opera. Um, of course, I knew the arias. I'm sure I'd seen it. I even remember a flirtation with it when I was young that I um, gravitated towards the melodrama of the piece. But as a mature opera lover, um, I didn't think Butterfly was for me. Um, I've, I've always struggled, actually, with Puccini's repertoire. Uh, La Boheme, I, I think, is, is brilliant and, and um, is a piece I've done many times. Um, but outside of Boheme, the other, the other Puccini operas I struggle with, and it is particularly the melodrama that I react against. Um, I was hired to, to direct productions for a festival many summers in a row in Sardinia, uh, in a very rural part of Sardinia. Uh, and the first year, I think we did Carmen, and uh, the second year, we maybe did Dido and Aeneas and a double bill. I can't remember. Um, but at some point, I had convinced them to let me do Debussy's Pelias et Melisande, uh, which is a work I've always wanted to do. I've, I've now done it in miniature, uh, but I've never been able to direct the whole piece. Uh, and, and I convinced them to let me do this, and they went along until about two months before we were supposed to start rehearsal and I got a call one day saying, uh, look, there's no way we can sell Pelias and Melisande uh, in Sardinia, um, in French, in a, a community that only speaks Italian. Um, this isn't going to fly. Would you consider doing Butterfly? And I, I had a flight that day with my dear friend and I said, oh, Butterfly, I hate Butterfly. It's the racial stereotypes, the way it treats the, the, the chorus, the, the melodrama. And this friend convinced me to, to, to give it another listen and to really uh, imagine reworking the piece. And I'll say that during that process of giving Butterfly uh, another chance, uh, I absolutely fell for the work. Uh, and I want to be very clear about this because a lot of this podcast is going to be very critical of Butterfly and it's a piece that merits a very critical uh, eye on it. Um, but it is a brilliant piece of writing. Um, and every time I return to the score, I find new brilliance. And I'm in awe of 
the way Puccini interpolates various light motifs, the way Puccini elevates himself from um, the bel canto tradition to work in a sort of Wagnerian way of viewing how musical motives can be layered on top of each other, but in a completely personal Italian uh, way of doing that. Um, its harmonies are advanced, uh, its representation of character is near perfect, and nobody like, could, nobody could manipulate uh, the emotions of a listener the way Puccini does, and he does that nowhere better than he does it in uh, Madame Butterfly. It is, it is nearly perfect in that respect. Um, but it is deeply problematic. Uh, it is um, more problematic than a lot of the other Orientalist works of, of the 19th century. Uh, one thinks of works like Lachme or The Pearl Fishers um, or even Verdi's um, African works like Nabucco or Aida. Um, these are problematic, but um, there are easy solutions that sort of avoid the larger solution that we need to think about. It's easy to take the Pearl Fishers and to reset it in um, a folkloric, uh, imagined land. It's easy to say that Pearl Fishers isn't exactly racist um, and it's a sort of harmless Orientalism because it's an unspecified time and place. Um, now I don't buy into that, but it's easy to convince audiences of that and it's easier to imagine a production of it that sort of skirts the issue the same way um, one can skirt the issue with uh, Magic Flute, which of course has has major racial issues in the way it deals with Monastatos and the slaves, but most opera companies will paint the slaves' faces blue and make a little change in the text and, and pretend that that deals with the situation. In Madame Butterfly, you can't do that. Why? Because actually Puccini um, and the sources he were drawing on was not just writing an Orientalist piece, but on a meta level, was dealing with Orientalism itself, albeit from a completely Western, uh, unilateral uh, perspective. Um, because the piece deals with the confrontation of Western culture and Eastern culture, um, in, this, in this instance particularly of a American soldier and a young Japanese girl, a former geisha, um, to whatever extent uh, Puccini understood that term. And we have to say that about everything Japanese, in heavy quotes, in the piece. Um, it deals with the, the meeting of these two cultures. So you can't divide out the Eastern part and make it mythologic or folkloric. Uh, you have to deal with the fact that they're confronting each other and they're very, very specific references to a time and a place in Japan. Um, I've been party to conversations about how to do Butterfly, uh, where the consensus in the room, of which I was not part, uh, but the consensus was that the best way to do Butterfly is to do a a completely uh, traditional production and in that way you're making a sort of historic museum piece. Um, of course anyone that knows me knows that that uh, goes against everything I believe in about how opera should be relevant and vital 
and contemporary. Um, at the same time, many people just focus on the casting of the principal characters, that, um, that uh, the casting of butterflies should be uh, Japanese or more often Asian, pan-Asian, um, which of course is, is, is not a solution to the problem at all. Uh, and the larger issue there is that you have a, an entire chorus of Butterfly's family and the members of her community. Um, and short of, of finding a completely Asian, or if you want to be, go to even further extent, which I can't imagine a company doing, a Japanese chorus, um, that, that's a solution companies have tried. Does that solve the problem? I would say no, because the stereotyping, the racial stereotyping is in the piece. You can't divide it from the piece just by doing ethnically specific casting. Other companies have tried uh, an approach to uh, perform the conversations of the Japanese characters among themselves uh, in Japanese, translated into Japanese, and uh, those parts with the American characters in English and those parts between the two characters in a sort of um, stumbling English that, that replicates the way uh, two cultures that don't speak the same language fluently would communicate with each other. This is a, a, uh, an, uh, a way of doing the piece that was tried this year uh, in a co-production by uh, an opera company, I want to say in L.A., and um, Opera on the Heights, which I believe is, is somewhere in the Southwest. Um, it is, again, we're all trying to find a way to do the piece. I'm not convinced that this is a solution because again, it doesn't deal with that element of the narrative. And, and at this point in the discussion, I'll, I'll talk mainly about the libretto, um, that part of that which, which contains racial stereotyping and which depicts the culture as um, in it fetishizes uh, the the Japanese culture, particularly in the way it treats butterfly as a subservient, simple, um, preening, um, fawning character. Um, I want to also say, though, of course, that butterfly has tremendous strength as a character, and it becomes tricky to talk about the racism in the piece because of course Puccini and the sources he based it on uh, show uh, Butterfly and the perspective of her and her culture in a very positive light. Um, it is ultimately condemning Pinkerton's actions and condemning the way that Western culture at that time minimized and um, took advantage of and, and raped in a figurative sense Eastern culture. But in the process of doing it, the piece itself also resorts to racial stereotypes and um, what are very uncomfortable depictions of Asian characters in Butterfly, but also in the, in the other characters, perhaps in a larger sense in the other characters. I want to give mention to the sources on which Puccini based his opera because they're very interesting. Puccini writes Madame Butterfly in 1904. In 1900, 
he was in London and saw a revival production of a play that had premiered the same year in New York by David Belasco. David Belasco is an American playwright who wrote uh, the Golden Girl of the West, which which Puccini also based an opera on, and his most famous play was Madame Butterfly. Uh, David Blasco's Madame Butterfly is a one-act play. It begins uh, on the hill over the harbor of Nagasaki uh, with Butterfly awaiting the arrival of uh, Pinkerton, the return of Pinkerton. And from that point, it follows fairly literally uh, the second and third act of Puccini's opera, though the time frame is, it, feel, it feels much shorter, feels more condensed, even though it, actually it's not. Um, and it ends almost the same way. Belasco's play is deeply problematic because he writes it in a form of pigeon, which um, it, which for, for those of you who may, may not be familiar with it, that's a way of writing English that um, notates the accent and the uh, incorrectness that that might be in incorrectness in quotes that might be in the spoken language by people who either aren't native speakers who who aren't um, educated in again quotes the proper way of speaking English. David Blasco writes the Asian characters in this pigeon, um, which, uh, for example, uh, the, the line that he returns to almost as a light motif is uh, de, de, de Robin nones ditiar. That's sort of writing, which I feel very uncomfortable saying, but just to give you an example of what it is. I can't imagine sitting through a full performance of this play. Um, it's, it is so deeply uncomfortable even to read it. Um, uh, Puccini saw this in 1900, immediately thought that it would make a, an opera and, uh, and set about writing it. Now the play is interestingly enough based on a short story by an American writer named John Luther Long. Uh, this short story uh, takes uh, generally the form of Puccini's opera in that it begins the story with the marriage of uh, Butterfly and Pinkerton. Now, of course, the details are much more elaborate, um, and there's much more dealings with the family, and Pinkerton, uh, the family's initially supportive. Pinkerton won't let the family have contact with her, and they become unsupportive. Um, uh, so so we, get, we get a lot more narrative uh, detail. What's really interesting about the, the John Luther Long is that in the end, um, uh, Butterfly takes the child, who is named Trouble, which is troubling, uh, takes the child and um, uh, decides to, gives it, this is the child to Suzuki and decides to kill herself and takes the sword and stabs herself. The first stab is uh, wounds her, but it is not fatal. And at that point, Suzuki enters the room with the child, pinches the child to make the child cry. Uh, Butterfly sees the child and is unable to uh, do the second stab. And then we, the story ends with the return, uh, with Sharpless saying that he returned the next day and uh, the house was empty. 
So we are led to believe not only that Butterfly lived, but that she took the child and began life again. Uh, I love this. I love that the original version of Butterfly, and to say it's original is a bit fallacious because uh, there there's, uh, are letters that the story was based on, and there's also Madame Chrysanthemum, which was uh, a, a purportedly autobiographical story that sort of is based on this too, uh, also does not have the suicide. But, but what is the original Madame Butterfly, this story by John Luther Long, ends with her living, with her taking ownership, with her taking the child, um, and uh, going to start her life again. Um, it's in the Blasco version that truncates it brilliantly into, into the two acts um, and focuses on just the plight of this woman but then resorts to the tools of melodrama and in that way uh, robs a Butterfly of her agency as a character and as a woman um, that uh, then transpires into Puccini's version which is equally brilliant. It's very moving um, but it is disturbing and uh, problematic in terms of race, and I think we'll be bold enough to say racism, uh, and misogyny in the way it treats its female characters. Uh, the question of misogyny is, is, is a big one. It runs throughout all of uh, Puccini's operas, perhaps all the 19th century operas, maybe all of opera, and we'll have a later discussion about that with Mary Beth Diggle, who's one of our butterflies, and who has been doing a project with the Flemish National Opera on misogyny in Puccini's operas and, and how that translates into the way women are given positions of leadership, creative leadership in the opera profession industry today. We'll talk about that separately. To give you uh, that background on the sources of Butterfly is just to say that our piece, as its starting place, asks the question, what if we go back through the sources? Uh, what if we were to restructure the piece in the way that Belasco structured it. And instead of uh, Puccini's linear narrative, we were to start with act two, which is uh, this woman waiting. We meet a woman who waits. She waits every day of her life. Her whole existence has narrowed, has whittled down to a single fiber, and that fiber is the hope that this man on whom she waits will return to her. Uh, and then everything from act one becomes either flashbacks or imaginings of how she met Pinkerton, of, of their, um, their wedding night, uh, and the voices from act one of the family of the, of, of, um, Bonzo are the voices in her head that torment her, voices of guilt or voices um, of delusion, of dementia. We don't know. Um, that, that sounds a little confusing. I'll, I'll explain it a, a little more. Um, the original production was conceived as uh, a telling of Butterfly that starts at the second act and we see remembrances of the beginning. But as uh, we worked on it, something became salient, and that is that Butterfly's music, Puccini, in a way, gives as a musical gift, gives Butterfly incredible agency. 
he does that by, even though she's supposed to be 16 years old, a young girl, he gives her incredible music, which is why it has to be sung by incredible singers with a spinto voice. A spinto voice is a type of voice um, that is lyric, except uses an incredible amount of squillo, which is um, higher partials of the head resonance, to make it cut through an orchestra. So it has the size of a dramatic voice, which would sing Wagner or something, but it does it using high partials, so it has a lot of what we call blade to it. It cuts through the orchestra. This means butterfly's music can have terrifying force. It can be sweet, it can be lyrical, but then on a dime it can turn and be uh, horrifyingly powerful and as a character when we meet her she uh, especially in our version when you meet her in the second act she can switch between being meek and mild and gentle to being suddenly ferocious when um, her belief that Pinkerton will return is in any way challenged so as we worked on the piece it became clear that the audience doesn't necessarily know these are flashbacks and Butterfly, as a character, goes between these moments of uh, lyrical moments and then ferocious, dramatic moments where she's, she's a force of nature, that one starts to wonder if these things ever occurred, if she actually ever met a Pinkerton, um, or if the whole thing has been imagined in her life. The other thing that happens is because Sharpless and Pinkerton are either memories or are... Um, fantasies, the only real characters in the piece are Suzuki, her friend, um, and Butterfly herself, uh, and the real love story becomes the relationship between Suzuki and Butterfly. I've always believed that actually the great love story of Madame Butterfly is the friendship between these two woman, women, and the way that Suzuki uh, knows in her heart that Pinkerton isn't coming back, or in our version, knows he never existed, um, but still she cares with her, still she refuses to leave Butterfly, even though they are um, losing, losing all, all the money they have, all the resources they have, they're going into poverty. Um, she refuses to leave Butterfly, and she supports her through this, um, this delirium, or this fantasy, that, that Pinkerton will return. What happens then in our version is that as um, as Butterfly's condition um, becomes more acute, um, and uh, as Suzuki witnesses her violent switches between um, terror that he won't come back, um, terror that her one hope, her single hope, the one thing that keeps her in existence, um, anytime that's challenged, um, that that she reacts violently and, and with horror and terror, um, and then goes into these um, sweet refrains, almost loses um, cognitions um, in the conversation with Sharpless, which comes in the middle of the second act, that Suzuki decides to push the matter to its conclusion, or in the words of T.S. Eliot, to dare to eat a peach. Um, and that's Suzuki who causes the sound of the cannon. And here the, the interpretation becomes based sort of on uh, Don Quixote of Cervantes, which um, has the characters 
play into Don Quixote's fantasy in order to force the fantasy to come to a conclusion. Um, Suzuki makes the sound of the cannon, knowing that this will force Butterfly to confront the fact that Pinkerton does not show up, that will make the entire fantasy unravel. And potentially, and we as an audience never know the answer to this question, potentially saves Butterfly by killing Butterfly, or saves Butterfly by uh, stripping of her the, of this delusion and forcing her to start again, to begin a new life. So in a way, even though the piece returns to the David Belasco architecture, it also returns to the, uh, to the original short stories ending of strength for Butterfly, that she in the end takes agency and has control over her own uh, path into the future. Uh, I don't know if this solves the Butterfly problem. Uh, it is an attempt by in-series to say there is another way to approach the canon, that if one approaches the canon not on one's knees, not with um, a sense of the sacred, but with a sense of the creative, and is willing to tear the canon apart and to reconstruct it in a way that 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 is um, in line with our own experience as contemporary beings and as a contemporary society, that the canon can matter, the canon can be relevant, the canon can um, speak, as it were. Uh, the other problem that people have talked about, and, and I don't have a solution to this, but I think the question, the conversation is fascinating, is Puccini's score for Butterfly and whether racism, um, and I, I use this term with a lot of hesitancy and in heavy quotes, cultural appropriation, um, pollutes the score of Butterfly, it makes the racism in the score, impossible to pull out of the score. Um, Puccini uses a lot of sounds that we now consider to be stereotypical of Asian musics, um, but actually most of the themes, uh, and certainly all the themes that would sound in, again, quotes, Asian to contemporary listeners, Puccini takes from contemporary sources for Japanese songs. Um, he uses a number of sources. One of them uh, was a collection published in the 1890s by a Japanese musician who uh, writes out, uh, I think it's about 24, 28 Japanese songs in Western notation and in Japanese notation. Um, uh, Puccini uses many of these um, throughout the score, and it would be fascinating to have the time to go through the score and to show where he uses all of them. Um, and it makes me almost giddy when I explore this because, because he's done such a brilliant job of weaving um, actual Japanese melodies throughout the score. Um, the other source, which is even more interesting, is a book of piano transcriptions or arrangements by a, a Viennese composer named a uh, musician named Rudolf Dietrich, Dietrich um, who was in Japan for many years as a uh, court musician, it seems, as a violinist and a bandmaster. 
and he notated and arranged um, other Japanese melodies. Um, what's interesting about Dietrich, and this is a sidebar but fascinating, is that his story in some ways parallels that of Pinkerton. He uh, had took a Japanese wife. Um, they had had a family, had a child named Otto, with her. Uh, even had a document at Otto's birth that claimed his illegitimate son, but said if he ever should ask this Japanese woman for the son back, and should she refuse to give the son to him to take away to Europe, uh, then he would also no longer have any obligation towards the child. Uh, he did eventually leave Japan. Um, there were some postcards between him and his uh, his Japanese wife as he traveled in America and then he settled back in Europe and took a, took a European wife. Um, I, I find this fascinating. Puccini certainly had this collection of piano transcriptions and uses many of them um, um, in a way that we would almost consider plagiarism. It's, I, I don't think it is and I don't think that concept existed and so it's unfair to apply it but, um, but he uses these liberally. Also, and most maybe even more interesting, and, and this might be familiar to you, there is a music box in a in a museum in um, New Jersey that has tunes on it that we know he used for Torrendot. This is a music box by a Swiss uh, clockmaker um, that has about eight or nine Chinese melodies. But in these in these melodies, he uses. Uh, we we know that Puccini knew this family and. Um, now we even think on the bottom of the internal workings of the piece he has um, scribbled his own sort of caricature of a, of a Japanese woman, maybe butterfly, we don't know, maybe Torindot. Um, so we know he knew this music box and the main theme which um, comes in the love duet uh, and, and throughout the opera uh, comes f directly from this music box as well as the secondary theme. Um, I This makes me love Puccini even more. I love that he was trying to use uh, these sources. Um, today we might call that cultural appropriation. Again, I don't think it's fair to apply that to the work because that concept didn't, didn't exist and the idea that Puccini should cite his sources and that the argument of course for cultural appropriation isn't that um, at least at its most logical. It isn't that one shouldn't use the sources of other cultures, but one should acknowledge um, the cultures from which one is using them. Of course, Puccini doesn't do that, but that concept didn't exist. Um, uh, so without it being pejoratively, he does appropriate um, Asian cultures um, indiscriminately. It didn't matter to him that some were Japanese and some were Chinese, um, which is a whole other discussion. Um, and then, of course, Puccini makes them Italian. And what we have are these Asian melodies as seen through Italian eyes, as transmuted through um, Italian orchestration and Western instruments and harmonization. Um, and in the same way, our butterfly, there is no reason that she sh is or should be, and perhaps it's more likely that she's not, uh, Japanese in any way, but rather uh, a Western woman who through, uh, through being cultured with 
operas like Butterfly, which with stories like Lachme and Pearl Fishers, through absorbing um, the opium of Orientalism that has been part of Western culture for 300 years at least, um, she imagines herself as she loses um, the strength of her senses. She imagines herself as a 16-year-old geisha, but she could be uh, an 80-year-old woman who has never married and who imagines this love affair that she had with Pinkerton as a, as a, as a young Japanese girl. Um, in this way, our version of Butterfly embraces that Puccini is writing uh, Asian music in quotes through Italian eyes by saying the whole thing is viewed through the, um, the purple smoke of, of Western Orientalism. And in that way, attempts to make the piece stand as a, as a work of theater that, um, that is not uh, Orientalist in, in its approach. Uh, the question of whether it's successful is, is for you to say, dear audience. Uh, we, we don't know. Uh, what it is is in series throwing a gauntlet out to the opera world saying this is a new way to approach the canon, to approach the canon with abandon and in that way have the deepest respect for the canon and hopefully be able to save the canon. This series, uh, this season at, at In Series, uh, is very canonical. Of course, we have new works um, like Stormy Weather, uh, which, have, which is again dealing with a dramatic canon, The Tempest, you couldn't get more canonical than that, but is not, not um, dealing with the opera canon. And, we have a festival of women composers, which are which are new works by living composers, but the piece, uh, the season, very well could be uh, upon the backbone of of Butterfly, Carmen, and Rigoletto, um, which means a, a large part of this conversation this year could be about what it means to be in an art form that is canonical, that deals less less so with new works and more so with a canon that we uh, perform over and over again. And what does it mean to take these works and to reinterpret them? Uh, and how else can we reinterpret them in ways that make them really vibrant, really speak to a contemporary audience? I feel that's going to be a large part of our conversations this year. Uniquely, our butterfly um, is meant to be a truly intimate theater experience, very much like um, those of you that saw Viva Verdi last year to see the Verdi Requiem um, up close and personal with eight opera singers in your face. This is very much the same. One never gets this experience to see Butterfly, to hear Butterfly, to I'll say feel Butterfly in a hundred seat theater with, with, um, with great Puccini singers that close to you. It'll be a completely new experience in that way. And because we're performing in such a small space, we'll be doing 16 performances in three weeks, which is more than the in-series has ever done. Uh, and to accomplish that, because Butterfly, of course, is a big sing, and our version is, um, you know, maybe 75 to 80 minutes, um, but for the Butterfly, it's almost the entire role just condensed. So for Butterfly, it's a larger sing, in a way, than the full opera. Uh, which means it's impossible for the Butterfly and the Pinkerton in particular to sing so many performances back to back. So we have two casts for the opera. Uh, and one thing we wrestle with as opera producers and I wrestle with as an opera lover is whether to perform opera 
in the original language. Uh, I love opera in original language, um, but I also love the experience of watching an audience get an opera immediately to understand the moment a singer sings a text, what that singer means. Um, and as a company, we have gone back and forth. Last year, we did some things in original language, some things in English. Um, this year will be the same. But with this piece, we have two casts, so why not perform in two languages? So we'll have eight performances in English, eight performances in Italian. I invite you to choose the one that interests you most, but I invite you even further to choose them both, to come twice, to, to see it in a different way with two different um, young, brilliant casts, international casts. We have singers from Africa, uh, uh, from Europe, uh, and of course from North America, both local and international. Um, this is an opportunity that one doesn't get very often, and I, I invite you to take special advantage of it. I hope you'll join us for the performances, as well as the fascinating ancillary events we'll have planned to go along with it. We have two directors' salon this year. We'll have one on uh, September 9th and one on September 16th. The first will deal with race and opera. It'll have as our guest uh, casting director from the Washington National Opera uh, and local arts leaders and singers talking about uh, how race influences the way we perform, prepare, cast opera. And a week later, we'll have a conversation on gender in opera. Mary Beth Diggle, who's one of our butterflies, I mentioned has been working on a project examining the way Puccini deals with women and how that influences the way we as an industry uh, have elevated or have failed to elevate women into positions of creative leadership. We'll also have uh, Corinne Hayes from the Washington National Opera, a very talented director there um, and a friend of mine to be part of this conversation. Uh, we're hoping to expand that panel and I'll have more news on uh, for you on that uh, as you tune in or you can tune into the website. You can go to www.inseries.org. Uh, we're going to be launching a brand new website in a week but the old one's still up. You can check out all that we have. There's more information on those director salons, on the productions, on the cast uh, and, and I'd I'd say keep checking in because we're always adding new information. We want to give you as many tools as possible to dig deeply into our in-series productions. This has been In Tune. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find out more about in-series at www.inseries.org or through social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Rabindranath Tagore tells us that civility is the first work of art. I encourage you to go out, to be civil, and to make art your life.